Good morning. As we come back together, we'll continue our study in uh, the book of Acts. I think this morning we'll, we'll read just part of the passage. Uh, we'll deal with the second half of this narrative, the uh, rather awkward passage with Ananias and Sapphira next week, because that needs its own uh, time and focus. This morning we'll just deal with the end of chapter 4. And remember, we're working through the book of Acts with this expectation of seeing how a revolutionary new way of living is coming to the forefront through the apostles' belief in the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That there is something changing fundamentally in the world because something that the Pharisees had always believed and hoped for, that was that there would someday be a resurrection, had actually happened now in the middle of history. And the transformation had begun and that Jesus becomes the first among many. And because of that hope, it is changing the very way in which the disciples understood the gospel, understood the power of the kingdom of God and understood all of Jewish history and their texts in light of this change. So this morning, we are going to uh, look at, again, the passage that... uh, stretches and encourages us about the nature of this new community while at the same time affirming those things that are foundational to the community of faith throughout time and history. So let's put the text in front of us. It is uh, Acts chapter 4, and I'll just read 32 through 37 this morning. Uh, But again, if you have your scriptures in front of you, open them and we can uh, allude and point to the text as we go forward. Hear now God's word. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There was no needy person among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sale, and put it at the Uh, apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from uh, Cyprus, whom the apostle called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we open your word and look more deeply into it, that we might again see the truths of the gospel, the good news of who you are and what you have done for us and what you are doing through us and where our strength really comes from. We pray, Lord, that all that is said this morning would be useful for the building up of your people and whatever is said that is not true or not useful, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So I think I've told some of you in private conversations, which is probably where this would have, should have stayed, but um, in seminary, uh, about a year and a half in, when you know just about enough to be dangerous, I, I contemplated with a friend of mine, a fellow seminarian, that we should bag seminary and start a cult, because there's just more money in cults. And... Uh, the reality is that, that what we thought of, we were not really, I mean, we, 
we love to target shoot, but we were thinking less apocalyptic cult and more love cult because we were more Epicurean in our spirits. And so the idea, of course, with that cult would embrace uh, fine food and wine and, and, and share those things generously among one another, but we would certainly enjoy the better things of life and that that seemed to be a, a, at least an immediately pragmatic way to move forward. Not surprisingly, uh, artists disagreed. And so here I am, a uh, Presbyterian minister. Um, but the reality is, of course, and we know this from any movement that is human-centered, right? I use that illustration because, of course, the cult that I started would look a lot like me. Whatever community I tried to create that I was suggesting was this idyllic culture, that this is the way the community should look like, it was really just riffing off of my own personal preferences. And as we begin to see the culture in the church develop in these passages and acts, there were many examples in Jewish history right around the apostles' time. In fact, even the community that kept the dead, what we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Scholars tell us that it was probably started by someone of the priestly class who was called the teacher. And there's some evidence that he maybe lost a power struggle in the first century BC uh, to those who ended up running uh, the temple under the Roman period that family of, of, uh, of power uh, that related to the instrument uh, of the sacraments for the people of Israel, the temple itself. And so he goes off in some bit of a snit and creates a community that did have a fair amount of certain biblical teachings about the sharing of community. And many of the uh, Qumran documents indicate that there was this commune that lived together and shared, trying to embody the uh, realities of a passage like Deuteronomy 15.4, which is quoted here in this passage where there will be no poor among you. But we all know that in the end, those human communes, those ideas of creating an independent culture driven by human ideals, however well-intended, end up taking on the spirit and culture of their founder. As we look into the church culture and we see as Jesus begins to create a culture based on him, his foundation, it regularly conflicts with even its own adherents, beliefs, and ideas. Peter is going to be confronted by the community of faith that Jesus is founding when he is told to go and talk to Cornelius. Paul is going to be regularly stretched as he's called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, even as he expounds it. We see him wrestling with what it means to care for the weak and the strong in more than one place. This is a community then that we're going to suggest is not falling into the trap of being defined by human leaders and human scholars and human gurus, but is in fact transcending all of those cultural norms and founding a community that is fundamentally different than anything the world has ever seen. Has it been hijacked a few times? Yes. But we keep going back to the text and we keep saying, in what way does this new community of faith challenge and affirm individuals and cultures and transform them in light of the gospel? Because the reason this text still exists and we're still wrestling with Christianity, I'm going to contend, and not still trying to wrestle with the implications of Qumran, is because one was based on human wisdom and that only lasts a generation or two 
and the other is based on a transcendent truth that even if humans mess it up, it's going to continue to exist because it's stronger even than our own failings. This calling to live in a Christian community in every age and in every culture will look differently and nonetheless it will be the same truths lived out by God's people. So what do we see in the text about this? First, there is one heart and one mind. Again, this is a description of covenant community gathered together in the belief and the assurance of who God is, what Jesus has done, and they have made commitments both to God and to one another. And these are anchored, of course, in the sufficiency of what Christ has done. The disciples are preaching the resurrection, which is both an answer to sin and an answer to death. That their hearts are being drawn into, again, the imagery and the fulfillment of all the promises of God. That He would restore life. That He would break down the walls between people. There would be reconciliation and there would be no more poor among you. And they have committed to this. Their minds and their hearts are one in their understanding of who Jesus is and what He has done. It doesn't mean that they all thought exactly the same about everything. Again, when we think this way in human terms, we think of somebody drinking the Kool-Aid. If I give up my heart and my mind to one idea, I will lose my identity and I'll probably end up in a very horrible situation. That's why the Scriptures has wonderful things like encouraging the Bereans. You go back to the text. But we can't live in fear of being of one heart and one mind because we're afraid that some human might take advantage of it. We can both assume that in human weakness there are ways in which a new covenant people is both attractive to those who are hurt and also appears to be an easy target for those who would seek to harm. Scripture is going to deal with that. Paul later on is going to talk to the Thessalonians about the fact that there seem to be people trying to take advantage of the generosity of the Christians and they need to be wise. That when this new covenant community in one heart and one mind is called into existence, it's called into existence based on the fact that a large section of Scripture is wisdom literature. It's Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Lamentations and the Song of Songs. Whatever one heart and one mind is calling, clearly Luke is not suggesting that they turned off their brains. We need to be less worried about what we've seen as tragic abuses and more, what does it mean, Lord, to have your spirit in such a way that we are increasingly as your people of one mind and spirit. One heart, as we long to see the realities of what it means to be people of the resurrection, people of new life built out in our own lives, our marriages, our friendships, and our churches. The apostles are teaching and unpacking, we see in the text. They are continuing to share their understanding by the Holy Spirit of the implications of what? What is this based on? It's based again on the resurrection. This is not the first time we've heard in the short sections we've already read. We're only in chapter 4 and the resurrection is the central reality of the Christian life. Is forefront in Acts. It's forefront in Acts because it is more than simply addressing the problem of sin and judgment. 
it is more than our sometimes, and again in modern times, a focus on how do we atone for sin. Much of our evangelism in recent years has been sin-based, right? You've got a bad habit, and then you confess that, and Jesus saves you from your sin, and then you're saved. And then there's just not a whole lot of explanation of what saved is. But for the first century, saved meant saved into the kingdom of God. It meant saved into a new community. It meant being a part of new creation. Not only new covenant community, but new creation itself. See, Jesus passes through death. And in passing through death, he defeats it. And on the other side, he's raised in glorified flesh. Something that is both similar and different to what you and I know in our broken sin and flesh that is plagued by the realities of the fall. Jesus is present physically, bodily resurrection, but it is not like a body you and I have ever seen. And in the midst of that, it is described as new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, Paul says. And so we are building on this idea, this reality of new creation. And as we unpack new creation, we unpack it in the assurance that one has already been resurrected. That the first fruits are already born and that he is coming back. That he is going to return to his kingdom and finish what he started The passing through into new creation allows us, again, not to belittle the reality of sin, but not to become myopically focused on it. Part of the challenge sometime in the Christian life is that people are frustrated by the fact that they keep sinning. And they wonder if they can really be good Christians and they wonder if God is really working in their life because they're still sinning. Again, if we read scripture, you're in good company. Right? Pretty sure Peter, in a lot of ways, is going to be a stronger believer than I ever will be. Holy Spirit can do what he wants. Peter wrestles with and denies and in some way sins against the body of Christ in his advocating for certain laws. He's wrestling with his own view of how to accept Gentiles as equals into the community. He wrestles with it his whole life. It's not as if the New Testament is absent sinners. The churches are written letters because people that are extolled for their virtue, their love of God, their compassion and their embracing of the gospel are doing one knuckleheaded thing after another. And Paul has to clarify, no, that's not the way the community lives. The idea that sin is the sole focus of the Christian life is not true of a community gathered around the resurrection. What the resurrection tells us is that sin and death have been addressed, therefore we can focus on life. And in the midst of it, this side of glory, you and I will sin and we will encourage one another not to. It's not as if Paul was like, well, sure, Peter, believe whatever you want. Or Paul wasn't saying to the church in Ephesus or in Corinth, sure, fine, mother-in-law, that'll be great. No. We encourage one another not to sin. But the focus is on what God is doing in building his kingdom, not this constant inward search. It's no less than knowing ourselves and confessing our weakness. But it's in light of going somewhere and being a part of new kingdom and new creation. 
It allows us to think politically. It allows us to think geopolitically in a way that doesn't limit itself to immediate fears, but to be generous, to create a new culture within whatever culture we exist in, which is what God's people are doing when they begin to hold all things in common. That is absolutely absurd for a Greek or Roman. Yes, we're all for the polis, but it's mine. The reality is that in many ways the Jewish society was wrestling with the implications of its own doctrines and creating these weird little rules that Jesus addresses, like when you promise something to the, the, uh, the temple, but you use it in the meantime, which is a way that you justify not helping out your parents. We always wrestle with what it is to be generous, what it is to live with an open hand. And it's one of the things that speaks most mightily to the power of the broken and sinful world that believes that real power and authority, at least while we're alive, comes from how much stuff you have and the fact that you have more stuff than somebody else. And so it's not surprising that every time God talks about what his community will look like, he talks about money. He talks about it in the Old Testament when he says, look, every seven years you're going to take time off. Why? Because I'm the one who provides for you. And you're going to give the land rest. And you're going to trust that I provide for you. And not only that, you're not going to harvest to the edge of your fields. Why? Because the poor can and should have opportunity to glean from the field. Because remember, who made the wheat grow? So you will not maximize profits. You will not squeeze every dollar out. You will be generous and trust that I care for you even as I care for those who at this point don't have access to land and can't sow. And not only that, over time he promises in Deuteronomy that you will be known as a people where there is no poor. That's a promise. It's also a future reality. It's not just a vague hope. It's a solid hope built on the promise of the resurrection. The application comes from Barnabas. He is transformed. He's a Levite from Cyprus. He is the man described as a son of encouragement. He's going to be key in getting Paul's ministry to the gospel, uh, sorry, to the Gentiles launched. He is a key figure in the book of Acts, and it starts with an acknowledgement of man of means becomes generous and gives. So I thought about starting a cult. One wonders sometimes if there isn't always the temptation of falling into the guiles and finding ourselves accidentally living in a cult. We increasingly live in a day and age where church giving is about 2.3, uh, 2.4%. Apparently, and I've grown up and some of you have, we have wonderful conversations about whether or not Paul's encouragement to give to the famine relief in Jerusalem where he says everyone should search their own heart and give what they should give is somehow refuting Jesus' words when he brings the tithe in in Matthew 23 and says, look, it's your heart and your tithe that matter. And increasingly as we've had those debates and had less and less of a sense of that generosity that comes with a foundational understanding of the tithe and bringing it into the temple that God's blessings might be poured out, poured out. 
we increasingly live in a church that encourages us to believe the notion that we are financially independent and responsible for ourselves and the best church to be a part of is one in which everybody is financially responsible for themselves and there is no poor. Not because there aren't poor, there's just no poor in our church. Because we are a place where we give, I guess, 3% to... Anna and I joke. Anna doesn't think it's funny, but I think sometimes maybe we could put like a brandy sniffer on her piano and then after the sermon, instead of having a regular offering, you could just go up and tip the minister and the music. Because that's sometimes what we feel like we give to the church for, right? We got to pay a pastor, we got to pay a musician. And that's kind of all we give to the church for. What other things might the church possibly do? Share the faith in former communist places, I guess we do that, right? My stars, the power of God's people gathered together and the generosity. Again, nobody suggests, and the, and the scholars are very firm, that nobody suggests that necessarily people sold their own houses that they lived in. Maybe they had extra properties. It wasn't a sense that anybody in the elders, in fact, we'll look at that next week, could demand that they sell their property. It was in that general sense that this community is doing something different and it operates differently and I want to be a part of a community and I'm drawn into this community because it's transforming the very nature of what stuff is and where I find my security. Some of the statistics, that again, they're taken from what we say as Christians as far as when we go to church and IRS records, right, that in a relevant magazine, which is a wonderful little Christian online thing, we could push the numbers this, that, and way and the other. But in 2013, a little article was written, and it basically projects that every year, given what we say about being Christian and church attendance, there is $165 billion in uncollected tithes in this country. I think we could get pretty close to, without government interference, dealing with certain issues that plague our society. Let's say he's wrong by 20%. That's still a chunk of change. There is power for God's people under the collective wisdom of Scripture to wrestle with what to do. Imagine if we were tithing. Again, CVP is a wonderful church, and I'm, I'm saying collectively as God's people, and not I don't know what you give. And I don't want to. I'm speaking of the nature that perhaps as Christ's church and all of us as individuals might become advocates for the tithe. Instead of buying into these cultic notions of trying to figure out how little we might or might not be able to give, the notion that, you know what? God built this foundation of 10%. And without increasing, without even getting close to what we're talking about in Acts, if God's people just tithed, because of the blessings that we have received in this nation, because of the power of the multiplication of wealth, if God's people just tithed, we could address so many of the deep needs in our society and the world around us that are partially addressed by money. And we've seen what happens when money is the only thing that's given. And we have pointed that out regularly, that money doesn't solve poverty. Well, it's part of it. The question is, will God's people gather together with the incredible resources that we have that are projected, that are known, and combine both that money with the wisdom 
of God's Scripture to truly address in ever greater degrees the problems of poverty and need and brokenness and cycles of violence and homelessness and lack of access to medical care. You don't want a one-payer system? Trust me, $160 billion will get a long way to helping people buy private health insurance. What if the problem is we're the answer? What would it look like for us to encourage one another? Again, if you're giving 3%, do you really care what your church does with your money? Of course not. That's tip money. But if you're giving 10% and that hurts and you're making decisions where you can't buy that car because you're giving 10%, are you going to care what we do with your money? Absolutely. You're going to invest in the community of faith. You're going to want to see the wisdom of God applied. You're going to want to see things change. You're going to be excited to know that God is transforming through your generosity and your wisdom, your community and the world around you. When we invest, we care. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we're called to is to be of one heart and one mind, driven by the power of the resurrection. And it is the gospel, it is Acts that says the first implication is that there was radical generosity that began to address the poverty and brokenness in the world around them. That's not a nutball liberal pastor trying to find a text for socialism. That's Luke connecting the dots between the power of the Holy Spirit, the gathering of God's people, the preaching of the resurrection, and what the Spirit did in the hearts of His people. My encouragement is that we could become advocates for the tithe in the gentlest way, pointing to the possible resources and impact if we did commit and gather and see us more than just a Sunday institution, but the means by which God expects to and will create a new community regardless of what governments and worlds around us say, built on the wisdom of Scripture, built on the realities of God's love and grace. What would it look like for us to begin to say, it would be fun to invest? What would it be like if we did to dream together of the promise that there are no poor among them, It was a possibility, it was a reality for a time and a section of God's church in Jerusalem. It can and will be in other spots. No illusions about it being completely fixed till Jesus comes back. That's not my job. It may be our calling, though, in our own place and time to be a small instrument and a small reality of the hope and promise of the resurrection together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again ask that you would be merciful to the preaching of your word. We desire, Lord, as difficult as it is, all of us, to be free in you and to live that generosity poured out on us by you. Lord God, how many of us look at our checkbooks and get worried? How might we be free from that? Only by your spirit, only by your truth. And we pray increasingly that we might encourage one another in that truth, for our life and joy with you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.